are in the Grotto Pod. I am in the Grotto Pod. We are all in the Grotto Pod. Welcome to this episode of the Grotto Pod. I am joined by Bridget Quinn. BQ. BQ to her friends. I, of course, am Larry Rosen. Also Larry Rosen. To everyone. To everyone. This week we come to you on enhanced sound settings, thanks to my uh, technologically savvy son. Progeny. Uh, yeah, progeny. Our guest is Faith Adele. We may or may not have said that correctly. I think I said. I think, I think I you probably did. It. It's beautiful. She has a beautiful name. She has a beautiful name, and she is, in a word, uh, uh, productive, prodigious. She oh puts gosh. out a lot of stuff. Yeah. In fact, I just realized a couple days ago that she had something new out this month. Which I had not realized. Right. What does she have out this month? Uh, she has a piece in a book that came out May 2nd, because this is May, even it though May. it's probably, probably not going to come out in May, right? Probably come out in June, yeah. Okay, that's fine. Um, the book is called Radical Hope, Letters of Love and Dissent in Dangerous Times. Hmm. And she wrote a letter to her father, who I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit, um, Nigerian uh, intellectual and government minister, or minister might not, maybe that's a very specific word, I don't know, but at any rate, important in the Nigerian government and the development mm-hmm. of that country, even though she's American, raised in America. Right. Uh, Faith is uh, self-proclaimed, uh, well, I guess you don't have to proclaim it if you just are, it's a Nigerian, Nordic, uh, Nordic Buddhist, Otis. All, all kinds of stuff. Yep. Um, and I, you know, normally when we prepare for these intros, I'll write down the guest's uh, published work, yeah, stuff like that. She has too much stuff. It's too all over the map. She's very famous for a memoir that came out uh, more than 10 years ago called Meeting Faith. Right. That was a big, big book. And we got to talk a little bit about the play on words that comes with being I named know. Faith, because she's a person who seems to have spent a lot of her life in search of faith. Well, and pursuing in, faith in seclusion and meditation in northern Thailand. That's the pretty first, extreme pursuit. Uh, well, I think she, she the, was like the first black Buddhist nun. Right, right. Is that right? In I mean, Thailand. in Thailand. Yeah. yeah. Not obviously. Which I'm not world. sure, you know, being a Buddhist nun, I, I have to ask her about that, too. The difference, you know, as far as... Uh, you know what I think the biggest difference between being no a Catholic vows, nun? Vow celibacy for Buddhist nun, yes uh, no, or no? I think there is a vow of celibacy. Okay. I think for Buddhist nuns and uh, monks... Don't know for sure. I just think that. Okay. Um, but uh, Catholic nuns don't shave their heads, and I think Buddhist nuns do. They do. Yeah. She had it. In, um, you can catch snippets of her documentary uh, called My Journey Home. Oh, that's, yeah. You, you can go to YouTube and catch a few snippets, one of which has her shaving her head. Yeah. Shows her shaving her head. Um, but like I said, uh, she's written textbooks. She has produced a documentary, and her actually, uh, there was mention of a second documentary, but I don't know if it actually happened. I think Faith does kind of multimedia projects sometimes. Yeah. That involve a lot of different media, obviously, um, and that she teaches that at CAA or she, CCA. Wait, College of Creative. College. CCA. College of Arts and Crafts? CCAC? No. No. Okay. We'll we have better to find ask. this we out. We are really. That's like an important San Francisco uh, institution. We are like, on point as professional yike. podcast hosts right now. Oh, boy. Uh, she is a speaker, a mentor, a teacher, an editor. She is a multi hyphenate, as they say in the sports world. Um, and that's a good thing. It's a great thing. In sports uh, and life. She's done a ton of artist residency. She is living and breathing art. And a lot of her art, one of the things that I'd like to delve into when we speak to her, is based on her life. Yeah. And her sense of sort of finding out who she is. Yeah. Coming into the world with, as you know, I guess, 
She is a multi-hyphenate. Exactly. I, in every way. In origin. In, in origin. So she spent a lot of time looking at that. Um, do you think we should go get? I do think so. I want to say that one of my favorite things by her is, um, I don't even remember where it was published, but it's a story of her getting married in her 50s. And it's oh. really funny. And it's also kind of, it's slightly multimedia. It has like almost like PowerPoint well, things she, that are pulled out. On her website, she had a few pictures, very joyous pictures. Of her wedding? Of after her wedding. Just her yeah. and her husband. Yeah. He's like 12 feet tall. Yeah. Yeah. Very tall man. And a uh, super funny story. Incredibly well told. Um, and I was while I was reading it, I was thinking, how do you manage all of these different things at once, like pulling out the PowerPoint? And so I would like to know process-wise how one does that. I think she is a woman who never gets tired. Maybe so. Maybe and so. she's wearing big red boots today, so she'll be Ooh. easy to find. Okay, Look I'm going. for the uh, Nigerian, Nordic, Thailand, Buddhist nun wearing red boots. Okay, here I go. All right. Bye. Are ready, Faith Adele. <laughs> no, Adele. <laughs> what is it? Adele. I, wait, oh, wait God. one more time. Adele. 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 Nice. Is that the Nigerian pronunciation? Uh, it's as close as I can. Right. Come. Right. I'm drunk. Undrunk. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I, I totally get it. There's like I a totally sweet spot it. for like an hour of drunkness I can get, and then after that I can't even say it at all. So <laughs> somewhere in the middle there. So, Faith, we were, you and I were just bantering a little bit before you got in here, and you said, I don't know <laughs> why right. I'm here. I don't have a book coming out. That's true. <laughs> but you're so cute. You got to be on anyway. But yeah, I was like, Larry's like that. I, oh, great. <laughs> like, why am I here? <laughs> Next thing you can see is me getting kicked out of the garage. No, you just had something in a book. <laughs> Many of us have. We all have things in well, books. <laughs> not that just came out. No? Oh, no, true. I said not like me. Oh, not, oh, Larry was like, Larry, Larry was giving me like a hand sign I couldn't read. He says he doesn't. No, I don't have anything. Grotto Land. Larry says he doesn't have anything in a book. I wasn't giving you the cut sign. No. Um, but, Grotto. Yeah, but. Radical Hope, Letters of Love and Dangerous t- and Descent in Dangerous Times. Yes, it's a pretty true. important book. It is. And full of important writers such as yourself, you know, Diaz. Uh, help me, I can't remember now suddenly who all the uh, other people Jewel are. Jewel Gomez. Uh, Roxanne Robbins. Kate Schatz. Mm-hmm. I love her now. I'm like, just, yeah, I just met her at the at the book release party and totally in love with her. Aya De Leon. Oh, yeah. Um, There's a lot of really good writers yeah. and some great stuff in there. I particularly enjoyed your piece. I thought it was very moving and beautiful and have questions. So you do have something, but I was about to say also... You do so many other things. I know. When don't you, you have, have so many irons on? in the fire? I said, if it was sports, you'd be called. A, actually, in the world, you'd be called a multi-hyphenate. In sports, you'd be called slash. <laughs> Why slash? Oh, because slash, slash, slash. Oh, I get it. I, I, get I forget it. the guy's name. He, no, there's a guy who played for the Steelers years ago, and his nickname was Slash because he was a quarterback, oh. wide receiver, running back. Yeah, yeah. You know, slash, slash, slash. There's so. also slash. Well, there's right. also Slash, who's not Lenny Kravitz. Last week, uh, like, I conflated. Oh, oh my really? God, I'm so embarrassed. Slash and Lenny Kravitz. Isn't that terrible? Oh, that is. I know. I'm sorry. I'm Lenny's very embarrassed. So much hotter. I agree. On all levels. <laughs> I think we all agree <laughs> on that, actually. <laughs> but we were interviewing Lee Kravitz. Right. And, uh, and yeah. yeah. So <laughs> everything in my brain exploded, and I was back in 1989. <clears throat> and that's what happened. But so given that you say, well, I don't have a book coming out now. Mm-hmm. What are you working on now? I'm working on my like my magnum opus. <laughs> okay, <explain. Yay. laughs> 
Explain. You so, have two memoirs already. Right. Is this another memoir or something else? This is else? a memoir. Okay. Um, yeah. This, the second one was a small, it's a mini memoir, a she book that's actually part right. of this larger memoir. This larger memoir is an epic memoir, which I thought yes. I had coined the term until a couple of um, there's that Norwegian guy. Oh, <laughs> let me let me say the name for you, Karl Ove Knausgård, who I went to high school with in Norway. Are you I wish serious? I had fucking thought of writing a nine oh, volume. Joe Loya. I wow. know. I'm like Joe Loya. Can you believe that? No, I cannot. Which brings me to your Nigerian That's father, hilarious. who has a Scandinavian name. Magnus is a very I know. Scandinavian Isn't that hilarious? name. Yeah, yeah, my mother is Nordic. Right. So that's interesting. Anyway, that yeah. was a little sideline. But that's your odd. magnum opus. And I'm, meet, I'm meeting him, this this Carl, whose name I cannot say. Carl Uwe. So you say both names. Okay, Carl Uwe. Yeah. Yes. So I'm yeah I'm leaving for Iceland in ten days. Holy as one cow. will. As one yes. does. <laughs> very inexpensive flights from Seattle to Iceland. I've heard. Oh yeah. But very um, cheap out of Oakland. I mean, so I'm magnum opus. I'm sorry, I took us off. So, is this a multi-volume memoir? Well, it depends wh- who buys it and what they say. But my mm-hmm. idea is that it's not. But it's four generations of family on three continents around three kind of epic moments in world history, and it's also multimedia. So it's a That's multiracial, the, multicultural, multimedia. Multi- the multimedia genre. piece is what I'm fascinated by because how do you it's hold slash. all that? Slash. Yeah. Well, it's taking me forever to figure out the structure that will work. That's why it's so complicated. So there, there are graphic novel elements to it. Oh, love there's it. a lyric essay. There's some experimental film. Um, there's just a lot of stuff going on. So how will that be incorporated in the final product, if I can use the word product? Well, that's, um, I mean, that's a question. I have something that's, that's on the page right now, but in the book proposal, we're talking about the fact that Part of it could live on a website, or mm, it could be it. an ebook version, or we're really kind of looking to right. my agent. I, I just got a new agent. She's super excited by That's how it kind of pushes great. all the boundaries, and we're waiting to see who the perfect house is and, how, and what they want to do with it. I mean, that might be the future of publishing. I think so. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a chicken versus egg question then. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're producing this body of work, I mean, obviously you start with an idea. I want to do this. At what point do you say to yourself, well, this obviously can't be contained in a book, or do you say to yourself, I'm going into this thinking it's going to be not just a book, it's going to be a graphic novel, it's going to be an experimental film, it's going to be all this great stuff? I think for me, the challenge always is figuring out the structure that a story wants. And with each project, I've kind of reinvented the structure. And oftentimes what I had in mind was beyond what we were capable of technologically at the time. So, you know, when I wrote Meeting Faith, people were saying, oh, you can't have stuff in the margins. You can't, you know, do all these things. Um, And then I worked with a book designer. They actually, we actually based it on the Talmud. So we just went Mm. back (laughs) to come forward. So (laughs) Meeting Faith is good for the Jews. It's good for the Jews. And then, you know, nowadays you see things like that all the time. Now that we have e-books and we have lots of things that have Mm -hmm. marginalia. Um, And so I've, I feel it's the same way that when I first started to write this last book, which has been, you know, labor of love for a couple of decades now, mm. we, we didn't have all the possibilities. So I was really just trying to break the page and push things and, and at least, you know, do different things on the page as a canvas that way. But I had no idea that we could, you know, that I could do audio and, and visual and all that. So which cool. Now we can. Well, and, and let's go back I love then. that. Um, <clears throat> when you got started and, and, well, I'll just ask you, you know, when did you, when did the light bulb go on that I'm going to be a writer for you? Oh, boy. 
That was a couple of times. I mean, um, I'd been raised to think I was going to be a writer. And then when I went to college, I thought I should be practical as a child mm. of immigrants. And so I studied economics and uh, stopped writing for about a minute. Mm. Um, <laughs> and the dismal science. It does but they're not you. mutually exclusive. I just no, saw something yeah. from the Harvard, Harvard Review, I don't know, saying you have to have more than one career. Mm, right. But back then, I don't think no, you know, I was a good immigrant. No, yeah. Just like, do my thing. Yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. And just yeah. go punch, and Punch your ticket. But I yeah. actually, even even then, I knew that I didn't want to study English or literature. I wanted to have another field mm-hmm. of study to bring to the writing. I thought it would be more interesting. And do you think that's been true? Yes, mm-hmm. definitely. But that's Same. interesting you say that. So you went to Harvard, and mm-hmm. you're the child of immigrants. Did you feel, when you were there, like, well, I can't waste this waste this education as a writer. I yeah. need to get show them, you know, you were right sending me here. Right, exactly. So more of a practical decision. So, yeah, something practical. So, yeah, it had to be that way. But you ended up a writer anyway. Mm. Yeah, but I mean, it's not, it wasn't smooth sailing. <laughs> like it is for most people. Yeah, so you know, after, I had to like flunk out. I had to have a breakdown. I had to like stop writing. I mean, I had live to, in the, you know. Live in the forest. Right. You know, there are things one Shave one your head. Skin. Shave your head. <laughs> you know, the usual. Thailand's first Buddhist nun. Right. You know, as one is wont to do. But I guess, the, but where I was going with that was when you started getting serious about writing. Okay. Did you think of it as bigger than something that fits on a page? Yes, because I always, I think I thought about the oral tradition, you know, coming mm-hmm. from coming from two immigrant oral traditions, the Nigerian and then the Nordic, um, and, you know, kind of growing up in my grandmother's kitchen while she was baking and cooking and painting and drawing and telling stories. And so that's how I saw stories. I saw them as color and I heard them. And so I always was trying to capture that on the page. Okay, well, let's go back to that childhood because, you know, you kind of lead with that. You know, <laughs> as a human being, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, I agree. During our intro, we said you're a multi-hyphenate professionally, but you're also a multi-hyphenate person. Person, right? Yeah. Right. So tell uh, all of our vast ocean of listeners, <laughs> yes, a those who don't already your, know your history. a little about your story. <laughs> so I'm, you know, that typical Nigerian Nordic girl. Mm-hmm. Um, Dime a dozen, girl right? Store. You know, oh, that old chestnut. So my father was a Nigerian, was an international student who, in that first generation of African students who came to Europe and the United States in preparation for independence. And so he had first gone to London and then became very interested in the civil rights movement in the U.S. and was like, oh, folks here are really doing something and like Britain is over. So he came to the U.S. My mom was the first in her family of Swedish and Finnish immigrants to go to college, um, was raised in you know, in a rural Washington state and a really progressive family. You know, my grandfather was like a Marxist union organizer, um, very liberal in terms of sexual politics. And she thought it would be in terms of racial politics. That turned out not to be the case. Oh, really? Otherwise, yes, they were like... Isn't that interesting? Yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, hypothetically, it was okay. Uh, but had had, yeah, this like very uh, politicized uh, childhood growing up and then Went to Washington State University um, as a 17-year-old freshwoman and met my father, who was a graduate student. Whoa. Yep. See, I'm more titillated by that. <laughs> so <Right>. naughty. <laughs> so Maybe naughty. less naughty then. Um, they were the only interracial couple on their college campus. Yeah. So yeah. it was That part was naughty. Least. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I was going to say, have you been to... To Pullman, but you grew up in Great Falls. <laughs> I know. I'm from Montana, so yeah. Okay. Never mind. Yeah. 
So continue. Uh, with what? Uh, your story. First, take a drink from your Hello Kitty uh, mug right there. Now, now people know it's really me. Yep. <laughs> I know. Hello, Hello Kitty caps. And, Hello and, Kitty. Yes. You may have had the first pussy cap. <laughs> I know. Oh, and my All gosh. these people are like... All these like middle-aged, elderly white women are coming up to me, and you're like, "Way to go!" And I'm like, you don't, "What the hell you are you talking is? about?" <laughs> it's just Hello Kitty. I've been doing this for years. It's not a pussy. Yeah, so and weird. I will say that while Joe Loya was the mo- brought the most colorful language to the yes. Grotto Pod, Faith brings the most colorful garb. Yes, yeah. awesome boots. The most patterns, the best boots. Lee was wearing cowboy boots, but they weren't red. That's tough to beat cowboy boots. Yeah, mm. these are pretty good. <clears throat> so you were raised in a small town outside of Yakima. Washington. Oh, right. Yeah. So initially, once my grandparents found out what my mom was up to, they separated them and they sent my mom to the University of Washington. And um, so they had this secret uh, love affair for the next year um, and then broke up. And my father ended up going to graduate school in Canada, in eastern Canada, in Ottawa, so very far, far away. Mm -hmm. And then eventually was called back to Nigeria. And so uh, by the time my mother discovered that she was pregnant, uh, her parents wanted or her father wanted her to get an abortion, which was illegal at the time. Um, Instead, she went to a home for unwed mothers. And that's where I was born. And then my father was called home to Nigeria. And then all of the issues started happening post-independence, the kind of tribal things that were happening, the pogroms against our people. Eventually, the war broke out, and for quite some time, we thought he had been killed in the Biafran War. So during that time, my mother reconciled with her grandparents, and we moved to their farm in Washington State, which is where I was raised. Wow. I mean, that's so global right there, right? Right, I mean, Nigerian independence and the rise of the civil rights movement in the United States. Exactly. And Uh, then you end up on a farm in a small town. Like a backwater. Right, which is like, yeah, farthest from. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Farthest from what's happening as there is. Right. I mean, maybe not the farthest, but close. Yeah, it's certainly. Rural Washington is nowhere at all. Right. Yeah, exactly. But so a, a lot of your work, which fascinatingly comes out in so many different forms is about your life and right. your, your personal journey, I guess you would say. So how did, I guess I want to ask when it occurred to you that that would be your life's work, but I also mm-hmm. want to know what sort of input as a child did you get that led you? I mean, there must have been a lot of feeling like the other. Right. And how did that inform what you later decided to pursue? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Well, I think our family was always kind of always aware of where we fit in history and we're always using kind of personal narratives to kind of interrogate history or kind of challenge the master narrative. So I was kind of brought up in that way. Um, and so my grandfather and my mother were always like reading the local news and like screaming and yelling and like writing letters to the editor that like Love every it. evening after after supper. And my so grandfather they were visionaries. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that was kind of the job. Like, you know, I, we were all supposed to read the news and then be able to critique it. Whereas my grandmother would be telling uh, like Nordic folk tales and mythology and keeping alive the people we'd left behind. So, so and so in the mm. old country. And so there was that sort of thing going on. And she and I were doing kind of more contemplative stuff. We were in the garden, we were painting. Um, and so then I got, and she was always trying to figure out the psychology of people. Like, why did they behave in the way that they did? Um, so I was always just aware of narrative. And then my grandfather was a great kind of tall tale teller too. And so 
something would happen, and then it be, and I would see it grow in size and drama before him. <laughs> yes, I've explained that. <laughs> and then my mom was crazy about reading books. I mean, she did not want to be in that town. She wanted to be someplace else. She dreamed of travel. She made lists of places, and then she read everything she could get her hands on. And it was mainly world history, uh, politics, religion. She wasn't interested in fiction. And so narrative was all around me, as well as kind of our role in history and changing history. Um, so I so I kind of grew up with that. I was encouraged to write. I started writing poetry at a young age, and I was encouraged to do that. And there was never any pressure on me to do anything else. I put it on myself when I went to college that I should do something more practical. But mm-hmm. it was never Kids do implied. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and now parents do it. No, but I'm, um, I see that in my kids even. Oh. When we're so supportive of the arts and I, if my, I want my son to marry, major in art and he thinks it's impractical. I'm like, <laughs> I just think it's so crazy. Have you read Marcus Samuelson's um, Yes, Chef? Because yeah. it's just fascinating to, the way you were talking about your Swedish grandmother mm-hmm. uh, is the way he talks about his Swedish grandmother. Oh, okay. um, and he was he's Ethiopian, right. but raised in Sweden. But very similar story, like being in the garden, being in the okay. kitchen, and the stories that she tells. I wonder if there is something inherently Swedish mm-hmm. in that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm curious to how, and I guess I'll just put this bluntly, how does Sunnyside Washington in the 60s, uh, 60s, 70s? 70s. 70s. Yeah. How do they like half Nigerian, half Nordic girl. (laughs) And how does that inform you? Right. It's interesting because when people find out I grew up there, they always think that was the hard part. And race was only one of the things that distinguished me. I mean, my family was already weird. You were the readers. I mean, you're you're writing. We were the readers. We were the Democrats. We were the Marxist. We were the... The Marxist. Yeah. (laughs) There weren't a lot of them, probably. (laughs) My grandfather was head of the... He was like president of the... What is that thing that vets are in? Uh, American oh, Legion. BFW. Oh, yeah. American Legion. Uh, yeah, and he opposed like the war in Vietnam. I mean, it was just like while being the president. I right. Mean, so now, I that's say, awesome. I trouble. love that. We I were mean, always trouble. I will say, you never know what you're going to find in a small town, right. but it can't. I mean, it would have to be harder than being oh, yeah. a big city. Yeah. No, and we and yeah, we were, but like race until I hit puberty. Race wasn't the thing that was the weirdest. It was the religion and it was mm-hmm. the politics. Religion and, and not being father. Christian? And not, yeah, and not yeah. being yeah, and not being born again Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, yeah, I mean, we had a large Mexican and uh, Chicano population who, who was either evangelical or Catholic. Right. Um, but, yeah, so for not being yeah. Christian with a capital C. Right, for sure. Scandinavians <laughs> for are not. for not being Republican. Right. I mean, yeah. Scan, yeah, Scandinavians and Nordics have been so politicized. Um, were very, very uh, progressive. And so that already marked it and marked my mom even before I came along. And she had tried to get out <laughs> and it hadn't worked. I mean, pulled she thought back. college would be it and then, you know, got pulled back. Um, so for me, I, I didn't even really pay attention to, like, race didn't really function that much. She, I was also kind of fairly protected when things happened. She would, you know, I would mention something at school and then mom would be like, Hmm. And she'd go to school and things would get rearranged. Mm. I wasn't quite sure what had happened. Mm. Uh, so it wasn't until I hit puberty when people started like then noticing that I was black and all the assumptions that were going to come with it. I was just cute and, you know, mm-hmm. precocious mm-hmm. and brown before. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, she's going to turn into a black person, therefore right. X, Y, and Z. So right. then I started getting what, like real active. <laughs> <laughs> real active racism. Uh, you know. Yikes. So, and did that yeah. leave you with a feeling of otherness or a feeling of specialness? Uh, definitely otherness, um, but it also because, and you know, my mixed friends and I talk about the difference between having being raised by the black parent who can tell you what's going on versus mm. being raised by the well-meaning white parent who wants to protect you from it. You don't learn any skills, so you internalize it. You really think that like 
oh, people in authority are just kind of crazy and you never know where they're going to turn against you. Mm -hmm. And if only you were like less troublesome and, you know, this sort of thing. So you're not able to say like, oh, that's institutional racism and I need to get myself someplace safe and it's you, it's not me. I was going to ask you, so what was your father's role then? Did he ever come back? No. Mm -mm. Okay. No. So do you know him? Uh Uh-huh. He wrote to me until once we realized that... Once we uh, reestablished contact, <laughs> yes, and he was alive, um, then he wrote to me um, up until the time I was 12. And then I didn't hear from him until I went to Nigeria when I was 26. Mm. And, and that was a him. kind of gift that you had an opportunity to go to Nigeria. Right. Right. Like, gift, like yeah. unexpected in a way. Right. Yes. Um, <laughs> Very unexpected. Didn't apply for it. Yeah. So. <laughs> got a but fellowship. So but, but you hadn't been, like, you hadn't been saying in your mind, like, I got to get there. No. It just happened. Yeah. Right? right. Which is, there's a lot of things I feel like in your story that are just these, you know, almost novelistic things that happen. I know. Uh, including your husband. <laughs> and my mom was like, what is with you? You would like walk down the street and someone like throws a net of opportunity over your head. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, there are people my... like that. But, so, so you go to Nigeria, a place you had never been, right. and you had had, um, you know, a, a epistolary uh, relationship with your father, <laughs> right, but you had right. not met. Right. Um, yeah. Want to say a little about that? Like that? What was that like? <laughs> I was deep. It was yeah, big. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I was very naive. Um, but, I mean, all the signs were pointed that I need to go there. You know, I got this fellowship out of the blue. And then uh, at that point, I was living in Boston. Wherever I went, I'd, like, get in a cab. And the cab driver would turn around and be like, are you Nigerian? And, like, no one had <laughs> recognized me ever. And even now, when I tell mm-hmm. Nigerians I'm Nigerian, they're like, like, they don't believe it. So, But, like, for that moment, I was being recognized wow. everywhere. So I was like, well, clearly I need to go. But I, you know, wasn't sure how he was going to respond. And so it was, you know, it was like, I'm going to go on my own. And I didn't realize that you can't really do Nigeria on your own. And you right. can't do Nigeria on your own with a Nigerian surname. So, like. I, because you're a woman or anyone? Anyone. Okay. Uh, it's, yeah, it's just, it's not, it's not set up for tourists. It's not yeah, friendly. Yeah. It's a really complicated. Yeah. You need to know how it all works. Rough, right. like old west sort of place. Got it. And, um. But you also, yeah, you can't just be like a young brown girl wandering around saying, oh, I have this Nigerian name. People are just like, wait, how'd you get that name? Who's your father? Who's your father's father's yeah. father? Where are these people coming from? How American right. did you feel? <laughs> yeah, Oops. I know. I know. I was like, oh. So, yeah, it took him about 20 minutes after I landed to find out I was there. And then all the negotiations started. Um, and it was complicated and funny and heartbreaking. Right. And uh, it took us about nine months to figure it out. Well, and you were there that whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and my mom was great. And I had some people, uh, strangers who I was living with who were great. I mean, it was amazing. Um, and I really, I'm an only child for my mom. So I really pushed f- through because I knew I must have siblings. Right. So, and you do. Oh, yeah. That was the payoff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to backtrack a little bit though. Um, or maybe not. Actually, I'm not sure of the timeline on this. Let's talk a little bit about you going to Thailand and becoming a nun. Okay. So when did that occur? Was it right after college? It was in the middle of college. So this is part of the dropout breakdown thing? Yeah, exactly. So after my sophomore year, <laughs> drop, what, is the, what is the Harvard the dropout thing? dropout breakdown about, uh, drop, drop acid, drop in, drop tune, out. Tune in, tune in, turn on, drop out. Oh, yeah, that's out. the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You dropped way out. Tune in, turn out, drop out, become a nun. <laughs> it was my sophomore slump. I wanted it to be dramatic. It was. Dramatic it was. I've seen a video of you getting your head shaved. I do it every yeah. couple of days. So if you ever want to redo, I can help you out. Good to know. <laughs> it was fun. Was it fun? 
one? Um, oh, the shaving your head. The part. shaving your yeah. head part because really the other fun. part doesn't sound that fun. Very <laughs> yeah, yeah. I usually do it sober, fun. but um, yeah, yeah, no, it was. Yeah, well, describe the thought processes that led to that solution to whatever was ailing you. <laughs> so I put a lot of pressure on myself to be the first person in my town and the first person in my family to have this scholarship to go to Harvard. And um, I'd also thought that going to college would fix everything, you know, that growing up in my horrible town had not. Hmm. So I really felt that I would find everybody who was like me and we would all be like right. really awesome intellectual bonding. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Committed and all this sort of thing. And so um, it was such a huge culture shock moving from the rural Northwest to New England um, and to the extreme classism and yes. sexism and racism in Boston and Harvard. Uh, it was just so much. What time was this? This what? was early 80s. Okay. So just a couple of years after the busing debacle. Which right, exactly. And people were still really wow, that's right. from that. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And so, that yeah, you could see that. Boston, yeah. Yeah. So they were like, you know, you can't get off on this subway stop and you can't get off here. And this is where you need to, you know, there's all this stuff. And then I had no idea how to interact with black people at all. No idea. <laughs> right. So, that's a trip too, right? You know, like, and, and so if you, you know, there's, you know, if you yeah. don't join the black students, you know, union immediately, which I had no idea I was supposed to do or anything or that I was supposed to greet people. So already I was like you know, cutting myself out there. So there's just so many things. And then I like tried to join, um, you know, women's groups because, you know, I'd been raised by this feminist, mm-hmm. you know, good feminist white single mom. And they were like so racist, but then like the black students thought I was so weird and they were so sexist. And so I just really couldn't find a nope. place where I your fit. Place. No yeah. closer to finding your place exactly. than you were in Sunnyside Wa. Right. You know, and a couple of Nigerian students were just like, we can't even understand what you're saying. Your name is like, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> yes, sorry, it's, you're on your own. So I was just like, I had no idea. I mean, it was such a cliche, but I had like, you know, no idea, no skills. And I didn't have older siblings. So I just had, I mean, I had. Right. You're figuring every single thing out for right. yourself. I'm getting exactly. sad just hearing it. I know. As, your, as a parent, it's like as a, Yeah, with a college-age child. Yeah, it's killing me. Yeah, my, yeah, my mom had no skills either, you know, because she'd been to school for like a minute in the 60s. And, and started dating pregnant. a grad student. Right. And then yeah. got pregnant and, and then yeah. was a mom. Yeah. You know, so she didn't know how to do any of right. that either. So it was, but it was just like, it's going to be fabulous. You know, that's But also the class the thing. thing for Westerners, because I went to grad school in New York and it was shocking to me. Like I just had no clue and did so many stupid things. I can't even right. imagine at a place like Harvard what it would be like. I know, right? Yeah. Like and, just stepping in it. Yeah. And did you feel pressure? Because it was supposed to be fantastic. What an opportunity. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So of course, you feel that you failed, right? Right. You know that right. you're the problem. But I could tell to a certain extent. I was like, because I mean, I had had that year as an exchange student in Thailand, mm-hmm. um, and so I was a bit. I was at least one year older than other first year students, and so I kind of knew like. I don't have the vocabulary you have, and I haven't, mm-hmm. you know, been to the Met, and you know, all these mm-hmm. things you're talking about, mm-hmm. I haven't done. But I can balance my checkbook, and I know how to like right. use washing machine life skills. And so I kind of knew that they didn't know everything. That they right. thought they were the center of the universe, machine. but I was like, mm, I don't know everything, but I don't have the vocabulary to say what yeah. I know matters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, you know. And they hadn't read widely outside of a really kind of white canon mm-hmm. and stuff. So I knew it wasn't the center of the world, but everybody around me was convinced it was. Right. And like when I would speak to my professors, if I ever had enough guts to say like. You know, could the curriculum be a, a little more updated? Their response every time was, Harvard is older than America. How old are you? 
Well, sure, that's airtight. What are you supposed to say? I know. That's like, yeah, unimpeachable well, reasoning there. This is my fourth life. <laughs> I know. Every time I was like, uh, okay, so, I mean, just shut up. It, Sadly, over here. Part of the premise of that is that you're not learning anything past the founding of Harvard then because the curriculum hasn't changed since the founding of Harvard. They haven't, nothing's entered the canon since then. There must have been a reason why it was allowed into the canon since the founding of Harvard, right. just as what with something new. Well, sure. That's what you say as a fully realized adult, as a 19-year-old. I'm just saying, as a Harvard professor, sorry. maybe I could I could take a moment to like yeah. think that thought process through, but I guess not. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is the 80s. I, rem- I, I remember this kind of And I think it's changed a little talk. since the 80s. I mean, Harvard was still the portal through which all the leaders passed at that time. I don't know right. that it's really that way anymore. I have no idea. Right. Yep. I mean... I see things that, you know, I see that there is some experiential education allowed, mm-hmm. that there are some world world literature. I mean, there are some, right, you know, right, right, right. it was just like, what? Right. You know, so this is practically treasonous, what you're saying, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that there could be any other way oh, yeah, of yeah, 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 yeah. anything else that mattered and that the curriculum is not supposed to look like you. And, and also that this thing. is like obviously the best. I mean, the right. thing that I used to always hear in the 80s was, well, we don't want to um, lower our standards right. by teaching women artists, or we don't right. want to lower our standards by teaching people of color, we don't want to lower our standards by teaching people from the West, or whatever it was, right. that somehow the canon was perfection and everything else had to be below that. Right. Okay, but a lot of freshmen have trouble adjusting. Right. They don't all become Buddhist nuns <laughs> then go to Thailand. And you, you grew well, up... it's very cool that you did. the right way to do stuff. <laughs> and you grew up... You grew no up one's lo- older. You said you grew up lowercase c Christian? No. no, no, no. you were Buddhists. No, oh, oh, just oh, not Christian. Just, oh, not, just Christian. not Christian. My mom was Unitarian. Okay. They were Scandinavians. They don't. They think Americans are insane. They were Lutherans. I don't know. They are Lutherans, yeah, they were, but they're not they were practicing. Not my my, yeah, my family yeah. was like very few Scandinavians. Actually so you really just so you're just really you you grew up without faith. How sad. Um, Although I guess you can never you be without your name? faith. I, you are yeah. asking me so many questions. <laughs> yeah. We're just like a machine gun coming at her from both sides. I, my mother took my religious education very seriously, and so I had to study all the world's great religions. She homeschooled me in Love addition it. to my crappy oh, okay. school that I had. And so I had huge sections on Got anthropology it. and world religions. So the whole idea was that when I turned 18, I could choose what religion I wanted. So I just chose Unitarian because that's what she was, and it seemed like, you know, broad, easy. All you had to do was vote Democrat, and you're, right. you're good to go. Right. Not a lot of ritual involved, but I had to study every every basic religion and so religion was important i think what she was trying to say was spirituality was important but we didn't really have that vocabulary mm-hmm. right then but i wasn't particularly interested because the only practicing religion i saw were like the christian right in my town lots of rules terrifying. yeah tons of rules and very bigoted and yeah so I, I was like Ugh. so you know i went to i went to sunday school with my friends for you know for some quite some time until i saw some abuse is happening, and then I'm like, I'm out. And so then I was just very anti-religion. So now what question am I answering? How does one Thanks. become a Buddhist nun? I just like saying Buddhist nun. Uh, Thanks for getting it right. So many people are, you're a monk, or you're this or that. Or well, during, during their college crisis. Hmm. Okay, during their college crisis. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> you know, I'm having my crisis... Any my own business, lying in bed during all my exams, you know, mm-hmm. just doing As one it, does. Doing, mm-hmm. Right, you know, and really kind of committing to it, avoiding anyone who wanted to help me. I was like really going all out, you know, going to make a big splash. And then, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I did it really well to such extent that you have to leave Harvard for a year. So you've got to go yeah. away somewhere. Yeah. 
Um, and I didn't really have a plan. And luckily, where I was like staggering around on campus, a student told me, a friend of mine said that he had seen um, like a flyer for a study in Thailand program. And you'd been to and Thailand already. And he knew yeah. I'd been there. And he's like, mm-hmm. you know, and the, and the deadline had just passed. It was just like a week ago. So I just called them and they were, and they were new. And I was like, I've been to Thailand XYZ. And they were like, oh my God, send your application. So that's what Great. saved me. Um, is, yeah. Again, a little bit of like... Deus ex machina, machina. I was going to say fairy dust, but oh, fairy dust, okay, fairy dust, deus ex machina. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So yeah, just happened to run into this guy who remembered that, told me that I applied and got it, um, got it, hooray, and um, that was the deal. So we were supposed to be there, and uh, we took classes at the university, but you were supposed to have some sort of field work to do, some sort of research project. And the guy that we spent the summer doing intensive language study in Madison, Wisconsin, before going. And so the guy who was my roommate there uh, was told me his plan that he was going to study Buddhist monks and then at the end he was going to ordain. And I was like, oh, that's brilliant. Oh, my God. I'm going to do that. Just the girl version. Yeah. Nuns. <laughs> I was like, yeah. And everyone in Thailand told me I couldn't do it. So then I knew Why? I was onto something and I had to because girls don't matter. So, oh, <laughs> not you couldn't do it. No. They were just, they were like, what? You know, so anytime yeah. you say Buddhist nun, they're like, broken heart, broken home. Broken heart, broken home. Oh. Like, it's like Tourette's. They can't stop. Like nowhere else yes. to turn type of thing. Right, yeah, so like it's kind of like the ugly child it. in Catholicism, ugly right. girl yes, or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I had a friend who was that too. Yeah. 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 So that that was the thing that like oh the monks but you know nuns oh my god they only do it because they like are losers and so then I knew oh my god this oh, is my calling yeah. I must to do this so then then I got into it <clears throat> so did it agree with you yeah it was amazing yeah I mean, initially I didn't plan to ordain I just planned to interview them so that was the right. plan that I was going to interview them and so I was hanging out and I was you know talking to nuns and I was asking them why they would choose this profession because they're really looked down on the monks mm-hmm. are deified and the and the nuns are really treated like shit and they're you know in the worst part of the temple and they've got the worst food and I mean you know they so they, interesting they still have to like um, like monks can get them ride public transportation for free. They don't pay taxes. They're this other category. Nuns still have to do all the stuff that women do because they're not considered really ordained. Um, mm-hmm. Because they're not, you know, they're not in the orange robes. And, they're not men, right? So, and they say that that lineage of the female monks has died out in Thailand, and you can't bring mm. it back. Though you what, could, but what the monks have died out too. So, you know, the person, like, right. you know, so the first one to ordain. So, so at certain points, the lineage dies out. So right. the male lineage had died out in Thailand, and they oh, just I went see. to another country got it. and got it. Got but it. the female lineage died out, so they didn't have female monks in orange. They just had this. Women in white thing. I see. Who they say aren't ordained, and so normally you make merit. Like so, there's this mis- there's this mistaken thought in the West that the monks are begging, which is not. They're walking, right. and if you give them something, then that makes merit for your karma. Right. So you're making it. You're praying, and you give them this offering. But they're saying since we don't know what women are, there's no point in giving you anything because it's not going to help. But we, don't have we a get no merit. Line. We get there's no merit. Yeah. yeah. So they're like, oh, they're hungry. They're, I mean, there's just all this stuff. So it's this catch twenty two of oh, they have to use money, so they're not spiritually high and. All this sort of thing. So that's why I was like, I got to do this. But my plan was not to ordain. It was just to observe them. So I was talking to them and I would ask them why they would choose this profession, which didn't seem great to me. Mm -hmm. And every single one of them would just kind of glow and say, I've never been more free. Wow. I'm like, what? I want some of this. (laughs) I know. Because I was like. 
Wow. I should look free, right? I'm like in my 20s, Harvard yeah. student, yeah. traveling the world. Western and gal. Miserable. Yeah. You know, so what is wow. this? And so there was that. And then um, my advisor kept on saying, you're asking a sociological question and they're responding in a spiritual language and you don't speak that language. How are you going to tell someone's story? If you don't speak the same language and if you don't have anything at stake, if you haven't risked, how can you take, tell someone's story? And I understood that on a political level because of all my training uh, and my upbringing. So I was like, OK, I do have to risk something. And then it just kind of worked out that I met the perfect nun and she kind of gave me this riddle to find her. And when I found her in the most amazing temple like ever and the one place in all of Thailand that allows women to do hard practice forest tradition, which I didn't know at the time. But I, like, found it on my own. You had to speak Thai. You had to get off on a bus and, like, hike through um, rice paddies to, like, find it in these caves. And and then when I found it, I was like, yes, I'm ordaining. And then didn't realize until after I had ordained that it was a hard practice temple where you have to take a vow of silence. So clearly I wasn't going to be doing Ooh. research. And, and, and also, like... <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, like there's no there's <laughs> so, sociology she told me all of that, but That'd I hadn't paid tough. attention. I was right. all like, oh, look at the butterflies and the waterfall. I was <laughs> like, no, it's right. it's magic. I know. That's totally. And thank and God. No sex. <laughs> thank God what, I had to uh, listen because I would not have had yeah, to yeah, get in there. Yeah, of course. What did your mom think? I think she was down with it. She's down yeah. with most things. Yeah. So oh, I wrote man. to her and told her I was going to do it. Hey, mom. None daughter. What do you think? Yeah. She's cool with it. And my friends who were there on the program with me, they took over writing to her. So they said I, was, they, I wondered how they that, would yeah. be her surrogate children and write yeah. to her during that time. Oh, it's it's amazing. So, yeah. Your mom sounds amazing. She's really cool. But don't send her fan mail. She hates that. But okay, I you, won't. <laughs> all these people write to her and she's like, it's, But it's an obligation. <laughs> you know? have, you, have you since yeah. had an experience that felt like as much of a... Um, I guess kind of a gut check, this is my calling. Hmm. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, that was probably the most unusual one, but I'd say all of it, like, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have had the guts to go to Nigeria with, like, some old photocopies of my dad's letters mm-hmm. when he's saying, don't come, and it's under military occupation, or, you know... Uh, some bad stuff have been going down. Dictator. Yeah, right. So there yeah. was that. Um, I think... Deciding to become a teacher, a professor, too. I mean, that also. Like, so I, I always just kind of operate from my gut. That's the one that seemed the most unusual outside of my norm. Like, mm-hmm. can I do this at all? When you were talking, what struck me was the advice from your advisor saying that's a sociological question to a spiritual, I'm sorry, that was my notebook, mm-hmm. um, spir- spiritual situation. All of the advice and what you did is also really good advice for a writer. You have to be brave. You have to be willing mm-hmm. to risk. Yeah. Um, and so, That's so true. I mean, looking at it from the perspective of hearing your story, that feels like a piece of you becoming a writer. That is true. And and I do reference that now, particularly when I teach travel writing, mm-hmm. you know, because there's there's such dangerous dynamics involved in that and coming from you know the northern yes, hemisphere to totally. the southern hemisphere to report on on life and so i'm always like what what's at risk what's mm-hmm. at stake mm-hmm. what you know what are you bringing to to this mm-hmm. um yeah what are you willing to do for for the story and it's all and, you know and 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 i also see i see travel narratives and personal narratives as spiritual narratives and again there's got to be a risk involved in right. that so yeah, yeah that's a 
you noticed something really smart there. That 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 was the that was one of the most powerful lessons for me, just in everything I do. So when he checked me on that, that's that's. Um it does feel like a little bit of a benediction, like a <laughs> moment of ding, and then you go into the wilderness, right? Exactly, and right? you have a spiritual experience, and you come back transformed. Yeah. It's a pretty archetypal, yeah, feeling mm-hmm. story right. in a way that's hard to imagine in contemporary life, and yet you did it, and you did it as a woman, right? I know. It's very often a man's story. I was very lucky. I mean, I found the one place you know where I could do that, it's and super cool, and you know. That moment after I had ordained and, and they brought me there, they dropped me off. And she said, you know, remember everything I told you about this place the first time you visit? And I was like, no. <laughs> you know, and then she like laid it all down and I was like, oh, what? No. Like I'd never meditated. And she's like, this intensive meditation retreat, we meditate 19 hours a day. We oh, have vow of silence one meal a day. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and then she said, you know, I know you're here, you know, to do research. Um, she said, and if I tell you what we're doing, you'll forget it. But if I show you and you touch it for yourself, you'll always remember do you want to go through with this? And again, that was another opportunity with another mm-hmm. incredible teacher offering me an amazing way of looking at the world, not just in that particular moment. And I was smart enough to recognize that and say, yes. And that's super brave. Can you imagine uh, as an undergraduate saying 19 hours of meditation? <laughs> I No. 19 minutes. Would Certainly. Have. No, I'm not even kidding. Like, there, yeah, I know. I had done 15 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Then. And that's was, hard. Was there an end date involved or did you have to leave? Yeah. No, we knew because okay. yeah, because of my um, the nature of my visa, being a student visa right. and all that stuff. So then you're in a cave. I'm making this up. You're in a cave. And then <laughs> Sometimes I'm in a cave. You end up back in Boston. Like, uh, what? And How now are that? you better prepared to handle all the <laughs> Are you like, ah! Yes. Then I did really well. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was wondering. I don't mean to compress your life, but I do have to no, manage no. the time. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I never answered the first question, which is like, how did I know I was going to become a writer? <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's how when it works, did you right? know? <laughs> was this when you became a writer? No. No. There's more stuff. <laughs> Take us on that journey. <laughs> Actually, what I was really interested in, so at some point you learned that all of your your journey and all of your 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 seeking would make for a great story. Mm-hmm. How did that sort of transpire? You mean the Thailand story, or just my life in general? Your life in general. My life in general. You some point at some point you realize this is kind of a one on one shot unicorn type of deal here. <laughs> People want to hear about Until someone this. became president of the United States, right? right. I know, right? <laughs> it's pretty weird. Like that's um, a little trippy, yeah, right? He wasn't a monk. Uh, me off. Okay. I know, but he did kind of like he, it's Harvard, just like, white yeah. mom. He made it seem like really Africa. easy. I mean, I actually had editors telling me like, "Oh yeah, you know, how come you're not president?" Seeking <laughs> stuff like God knows, you know, it's like there's no trauma involved. You can become president. Yeah, except well, what? it sounds like at least by the time he hit high school, he had a pretty significant financial advantage. Mm. I mean, he did. Did he go to St. Louis or Punahou? I don't remember. No, he, which he one. went to some really fancy yeah. private school in Hawaii, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 But we're not interested in his story. No, no. <laughs> Whatever, dude. No, we're interested faith. in Faith's story. Yep. We got to yes, have faith. The road we got to have faith. to the White House. <laughs> <laughs> the road to the grotto pod. So, okay. So what was happening was after I had come back from, okay, so I finished school. I came back from Thailand. I graduated. Um, I wrote about the nuns for my senior thesis. And then I had a fellowship to go to Sri Lanka and study nuns because there's a nun island there. And so 
That's what I was going to do. <laughs> Nun Island. There's a Nun Island. There's a book in that, too. I think, well, I think it was in a superhero movie. <laughs> I know, right? So I was like, all right, I'm going to go to Nun Island. Nun Island. <laughs> okay. But then the thing is, is this pesky little war broke out um, oh, yeah, between war. the Tamils and the Sinhalese. And, and I had already given up my apartment and my job. And I'm like, you know, halfway to the airport. And then I'm like... And I wonder about this. Yeah. So I was just like Not couch surfing and like waiting and trying to figure out what's going on. So then that's when my fellowship got changed to Nigeria out of the blue. I hadn't asked for it, but I right. got changed to Nigeria. So then I spent a year in Nigeria. So then I come back and I'm trying to then write about it. And up until this moment, I've been a poet. So as a child, all of this stuff, you know, I've written some of my journals, but otherwise I've just been a poet. So I'm trying, I'm in this small writing group and I'm trying to write these poems about my parents getting together, you know, the civil rights movement, you know, my parents, you know, the you know, the Biafran war, like the trauma that I still saw that was going on in Nigeria as a result of them not, never having really dealt with that, but immediately becoming, you know, oil rich and all this stuff, sort of stuff. So I'm starting to do the thing that I'm, you know, been working on, but in poems. And so, wow. Yeah, right. 400 years of history. And so my, yeah. my friends have an intervention and they're like... <laughs> Poetry intervention. Uh, yeah. They're like we two things. We have two things. Yes, we're all here for you. We love you. If we you keep like writing you. poems, we have to leave. <laughs> we're like, we would like you to stop with the caffeine and start using sentences. So that was my intervention. So I, was like, I love it. Oh, I need a genre. And Good like, friends. You know, some decaf. So then I like looked around and um, discovered a creative nonfiction, which wasn't that big at Yay. the time. Mm-hmm. But ah, hardly, I discovered Mike, I had bought Michael and Dodgy's Running in the Family mm-hmm. in a bookstore in Thailand. And I'd read it like in an afternoon as if I were on, you know, having a fever. It was just like incredible. And I was like, that's the thing, whatever mm-hmm. that thing is. And Agreed. so then I started, then I realized, okay, I can use personal narrative, which I'm not that thrilled about using to kind of talk about these larger things. And that's when I realized that I could... But even then, I wasn't writing the nun thing at all. I was just writing the family thing. It took years after that to write the nun thing. I didn't want to at all. Well, that's what's interesting to me is that, yes, it's personal narrative, and yes, you tell your story, but it just so happens that your story is one that touches on so many global issues right. that it becomes a universal story. Thus, right. the magnum opus. Correct. Right. Right. And that's the only reason I'm really interested in it. Right. And it continues kind of my whole political project, which is kind of trying to challenge and complicate and nuance kind of the master narrative, these national narratives, which can be so harmful if you believe them mm-hmm. and they're, you know, they're drafted by the victors and not by like the ordinary mm. people who are living things. So it's just like I wanted to kind of insert kind of the complexity of my reality in particular, like this whole black white binary and the way a story is supposed to be shaped. And I mean, everything, it just felt like everything in my life was a, a challenge to that, mm-hmm. you know, the way you're supposed to tell a story and good versus evil and black versus white. I was just like, none of these story forms fit for me. And so I just have to kind of talk about what's going on with me personally because already then it illuminates, uh, you know, classism and racism and sexism and these large moments that kind of transformed our society. Um, and so then I became really interested in how personal narrative is in fact civic testimony is, in fact, a democratic performance, is, in fact, a multicultural engagement. And, and I wonder, once stories change, the narrative, the bigger narrative, stories can change the bigger narrative. Mm-hmm. And that's exciting. Right. And hopeful and powerful. Exactly. Mm-hmm. 
and you're uniquely qualified to tell this story. Right. But I, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I asked this question before, so I'm just going to reframe and pretend like it's a new question. But at what point do you decide <laughs> that this story is too big for narrative fiction? Uh, narrative nonfiction. Narrative nonfiction. <laughs> do you write fiction? No. Okay. I mean, I wrote one trashy novel with friends under a pseudonym, but oh. that's it. Ooh. Interesting. I, just quickly, it's out there. I do. Quickly, it's out there. <laughs> I do feel sometimes like poetry and creative nonfiction are very close. Yes. And can be, or can be very close. I agree. That's all I want to say. I do. About that. You know, I feel that as well. Mm-hmm. I definitely feel that. And I understand. Yeah. I mean, I thought, oh, I'll just write this whole thing and I'll go back to poetry. That Mm -hmm. never happened. I never went back to poetry, but I certainly understand that. I don't really understand the impulse to fiction. Um, Fiction I do find a little baffling. I mean, I I love novels and I love fiction, but it's definitely not – I'm really – excited by and um, I feel it's magical how reality can have these weird coincidences, these magical moments that you could be named Faith. I mean, I love that in nonfiction. And I just wonder what that's like in fiction. If you can just make it up. I know. It seems like you're cheating. You're just just, like, I'll just make up this metaphor. It's just not as interesting. (laughs) I love novels. I love novels. But for me, I I wouldn't even know what to, I wouldn't know what to do. I know. There's too much. Yeah. 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 Whereas nonfiction, creating art out of the building blocks of nonfiction right. is similar to like creating a, a formal poem, a poem yes. that, you know, like a sustainer or something. Right. You've got to do these certain things and right. still have it be art within those constraints, which I really love. Before we run out of time, tell yes. me a little bit about the documentary. <laughs> oh, okay. Which is sort of an extension of the, st- of the story. Right, exactly. And it's, and that it will be kind of folded into this epic memoir as well and kind of gave me another lens. So mm-hmm. I was in graduate school. Um, I had written Meeting Faith. I had transcribed my journals from being a, a nun and finally realized that this isn't a story I had to be ashamed of that I could actually, you know, I was thinking ashamed about how to write it. it. For me, I thought it was a, a narrative of failure. Interesting. I failed. I failed. I didn't realize that what did you fail America at? had ha- failed me. You know, there was this myth of meritocracy. If you did so well, you oh. could get the scholarship oh. to Harvard, Harvard, and then I had failed. And then oh. it wasn't until I wrote it that it was like, oh, no, no, no. The the myth, the dream failed me. Harvard failed me. America failed me. And I put myself back together, and it was really by showing those things that were really hard to talk about, it could actually Especially be helpful then. for other people. I mean, yeah. I, I'm not saying it's easy now. It's not. But that was still, I mean, 10 years ago, the narrative was still meritocracy was it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it wasn't until I wrote it that I kind of understood how it fit. I also just thought, you know, it's all, I already had all these issues about kind of being being perceived as an authentically black person. You know, mm-hmm. it was already uh, she's mixed and she was raised here and uh-huh. all this sort of stuff. And then if I throw in Buddhist nun, I'm just like, I'm totally going to lose like, yeah, your scrolling card, right? Yeah. You know, so I was like, oh, do I really need to go there? Uh, but once I figured out what that story was and how it could be helpful, you know, then I wrote that. What, what question am I answering? Documentary. Oh, the documentary. Oh, okay. So I was at graduate school. I'd finished with that book and I was working on this, this epic one and had, so I'd published some chapters about it and, um, Somebody from PBS just called me at work one day and said, like, you know, uh, are you interested in becoming a, a television star? And I was like, eh, you're calling from PBS, Again. so that's not really an option. So, no. <laughs> but yeah, I was just – I just picked up the phone. And then they were like, uh, we've got this money. We're supposed to be doing this documentary on how what happens around the world ends up impacting American families. We've got a – uh, a Vietnamese family here that came after the fall of Saigon. We've got a Chicano family whose father was deported during Operation Wetback in the 50s. And 
Rebecca Walker was supposed to be our biracial girl, and she just pulled out. So, like, <laughs> would you like to be the Rebecca Walker? And I was like, I could even do it better because, like, she's, I know she's I like got, not I even got another country. I know <laughs> like, it's supposed to be. I was, I was like, got Nigerian. He's like, what? I didn't even realize that. He's like, I just had a feeling. I just like called you before I even checked with the producer. And so, what? Yeah. This is okay. Come on. When you look back Sorry on your God. life, this is crazy. I know it is crazy. You know, because they were just looking to, for another mixed African American white, the suit, like, like that's Johnny it? Bravo, right? That's, and there weren't a lot out. At the, I mean, now everybody's like. It seems like a lot of people who come into the Grotto Pod have these sort of kismet yeah. situations. Mm-hmm. You know, Joe Loya was Mister Kismet. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think maybe that's just life. Like, maybe, well, we impose message. order on chaos, but these right. are these are bigger yeah. than that. I'm sorry, no. Right. Well, yeah, he had some luck though. Too. Okay. Joe and Faith. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> Just Joe and Faith. <laughs> That's it, though. <laughs> <clears throat> so as you move move forward through this epic mm-hmm. memoir, um, tell us a little bit about – I'm really fascinated with this idea that you're not just a writer – and tell us about the different. <laughs> you know how you how you came upon the different different formats to use to tell this story. Hmm. Did someone say, "Hey, you know what? This we should make part of a graphic novel." Well, I think did you answer it earlier when you said that you came from an oral tradition in your oh. family? So that's that's part of it. Um, then you made the documentary. Well, yeah. and the working on the meeting faith stuff too. It was like I was trying to do something, and someone in grad school said, "I'm going to introduce you to someone at the center for the book." You know, mm-hmm. and I didn't even know book arts was a thing, but she's just, you know, and so like, mm-hmm. let's just talk. And then the woman is like, this is fascinating. I'm going to do it as a side project and I'm going to research kind of spiritual texts to see because I want it to signal on some level. And, you know, and then she came up with the Talmud thing. And then and then I started becoming interested in book arts and like talking to people in book arts, you know, and so Love that kind that. of stuff. Then, you know, working on the documentary, the person who was going to edit it said, um, I've never she did put together first person documentaries all the time and she'd never met the person any of the people that, whose documentaries she was putting together she would just try to t- try to assemble something and she's like do you want to do it differently and i said i do so we went to sundance together and we like went to first person documentaries and we just tried to build up a similar language and then i would tell her like this is footage that i was dreamed of as a child can you find this footage about the biafran war and so we would just oh have this my thing gosh, and that's then so cool and she'd say like normally like the cameraman said like normally normally I never let someone let them see themselves. Right. He's yeah. like, but you're an artist, so I'm going to let you see it. You know, and and then they had to help me work on the narrative because they'd say, you know, write some narrative about how you feel, and I would write an image. And they're like, we have an image; it's film. And I'm like, right. I can't just say how I feel. So I was learning a lot from people yeah. around me. So then I became just really interested, and I started taking like digital storytelling classes mm-hmm. and doing some live. Stand-up. Well, let me let me ask you this then. Stand up. Um, what? Live storytelling. Okay. Stand up. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I was like, what? So you've introduced the idea of collaboration then into yeah. the writing process. Which are you more comfortable with now? Um, I mean, I'm a super perfectionist, so I do have to kind of suffer on my own, but I love, (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, also kind of going to a lot of writers, artist residencies and seeing people dealing with the same issues, but approaching it really differently. I mean, particularly like with mixed race, a lot of people were doing that in in film and in multimedia before we had all the writing Mm -hmm. about it and stuff like that. Or I would be asked to, there was a year where I just said yes to anything I was being asked to do. So someone's like, oh, do you have a one-woman show to do on stage? And I'm like, uh, Heck yeah. yeah. And they're like, you know, there was a really good book in that year of yes. <laughs> My year of yes. You should have done that. <laughs> if only I were faster. Faster writer. But or you just got back from Vortex, right? Yes. You want to say yeah. something about that? 
Um, I won't finish what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, God. My, oh, boy. Back in your place. I know, totally. <laughs> Um, oh man, what was it? Oh, shit, Collaboration, that's my fault. The, uh, solitary work. Uh, a lot of people doing mixed race stuff in video, not writing. Yeah, so yeah, so yeah, I had other examples of things where people had, um, yeah, that I had agreed to do that I didn't realize that their field overlapped with mine. Like I was asked to be at a philosophy conference and. And I was asked to to lecture in a design class. And they all deal with the same things I do, but they approach them completely differently. So then that just started. So then I'm really interested in that way. I'm not as interested in collaborating with other writers, but with people who are, have, you know, worked in other fields. And that was my beginning, you know, because I didn't come up in, you know, in English or anything like that. You know, my degree is in social sciences. And Mm -hmm. that's what I always wanted to do. I always wanted to look at other structures and figure out how they could inform my writing. I mean, I got a whole MFA in fiction at the Iowa Writers Workshop just so my nonfiction would be more colorful, not because I was interested in fiction at all. Um, And so that's just always been my approach. So your MFA is in fiction, but you always wrote nonfiction. Yeah. So interest. I I was in both programs at the same time. Mm -hmm. I was in the nonfiction program and I was in the writer's workshop in fiction and I was working on meeting faith in nonfiction. I was working on this epic memoir in the fiction. So that's how long you've been, when you said a couple of decades, truly, truly working on it for a couple of decades. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and then like the 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 she book, the mini memoir of Nigerian Nordic Girls Guide to Lady Problems, was like a chapter from that in which I just tried to play with the idea of telling a story three times through different lenses. Mm-hmm. So, um, using Nordic mythology, using Western medicine, and using Igbo mythology to kind of figure out. Well, I got fibroids when I was in graduate school, which mm-hmm. I saw as kind of a metaphor for trying to write about my family, and so it was just playing around with different structures. Um, so. Yeah, so I just fixate and try to work on something to kind of figure out what the story possibilities are. I've taken like a mapping class so I can just like map stuff to kind of figure out what's the narrative potential of like maps and overlapping things because I see things intergenerationally too. So when I tell the story, like if I talk about like my first trauma at school, I'll tell my story, I'll tell my mother's story, I'll tell my grandmother's story, and then I might tell something that's mythological that ties them. And there are two points of view. There's a first person and then there's a second person spirit double in the book because spirit double is the unifying uh, kind of mythology in both Igbo and Nordic culture. Oh. Wow. Well, Faith, so. I don't think there's enough hours in the day to be you, <laughs> personally. But speaking of time, we're out of time, unfortunately. Can I ask one more question? Sure. I want to know how You're long editing. how long <laughs> the Magnum Opus is. It's 700 pages. 700. So you're still below Carlo Bukanowskor. So it's yes, still only one good. volume, but it's one volume. Oh, that's yeah. true. So kind of big. That's okay. That's what digital books and there's are for. Images and all that. Stuff. Oh, that's exciting. I'm super <laughs> yeah. excited. We're looking forward so. to it. Faith, can you give us a website where people can get a hold of you? Twitter, that sort of thing. Yeah. So my Twitter handle and my Instagram are both meeting, at meeting faith. And then my website is just my last name, Adiele. Which I will again mispronounce. <laughs> Uh, here at the Grotto Pod, you can find us at grottopod.com, uh, Facebook slash grottopod, at the Grotto Pod, and email grottopod at gmail.com. What is yes, that, noise? that is my family texting me. <laughs> <laughs> if only they could have waited five more minutes. Don't they know where you are? Well, I know where you can find me. You can oh. find me at that Larry Rosen. Oh, well, there you go. Or, or if you can't get enough of me, 
And you want to hear my voice twice a week? Okay. You can listen to my other podcast, Is It Good for the Jews? You can find us at isitgoodforthejews.com. Bridget, <laughs> okay, where can made, they find you, you except in this little laugh. tiny room? <laughs> oh, meeting faith is good for the Jews. Yes. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. You heard it here. Where can they find you? They can find me at Bequintrust on Twitter and Instagram or at BridgetQuintAuthor.com. And while I'm at it, I want to thank Sugartown for all the cool tunes. And how and about our producers? Our producers always. Lee Beth, Kravitz. Lee Kravitz, Beth Weingartner, and Lorianne Doyle. Doyle. Thank all you. Right. You're That's the best. For us, take us home. BQ. BQ, here it goes. Be like Faith. Read, write, and just keep working. Oh, my God, endlessly. Never stops working. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. 